Welcome to Micromobility, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of lightweight utility vehicles. Using the history of computing as a framework, we examine how these technologies will upend everything we thought we knew about the future of urban transport. The host of the show is Horace Deju, founder of Asimco.com, and I'm his co-host, Oliver Bruce. Hey team, Oliver here. Ever since I interviewed Kariana from Wii earlier this year, I've been excited to find more companies doing e-cargo bike subscriptions to families. As Kariana says, there is a lot of money to be made by taking women and more generally families seriously. So it was awesome to more recently discover the team at Lug and Carry based in Australia, who are, as far as I can tell, the largest e-cargo bike subscription business globally. This is obviously notwithstanding Dance and Swapfiats who have larger businesses but are focused more on the commuter bikes in Europe. As you'll hear in this interview, I think Dan and Ben have absolutely nailed product market fit, e-cargo bikes being absolutely perfect for subscription, and I've been super impressed with both of them as a team, as well as the execution and positioning. I'm very excited to see what this company goes on to do, especially with their forthcoming launch into larger markets. In the meantime, if you haven't checked it out already, I would encourage you to find and vote for our Rider Choice Awards. It is our industry's version of the Oscars, the BAFTAs, the Top Gear Speed Week, and Webby's all tied up into one. You can select the best firms and vehicles in more than 30 categories and get them selected for consideration ahead of judging for Micromobility World, which is happening online on January 19th. We have many of the top brands in the world currently battling it out for the top spot in the bike, scooter, pods, subscription business, shared operators, and more business categories from around the world. We've been absolutely blown away by the level of excitement from the community and are pumped to share the preliminary results with you very soon. The first round of cutoff is coming this month and then again next month. So get your votes in quickly for the firms that you like the most. And now, here is Ben and Dan. Let's go. And welcome back to Micromobility. I have with us today, Dan and Ben Carr from Lug and Carry. Uh, how are you both going today? Yeah, well, thanks, Oliver. I'm having a cracking day. It's a ride to work day and it's sunny, so love it. can't beat that. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, it's always lovely to have Antipode and partners on the podcast, but I'd, I'd love to just have a little bit, kind of get a sense from you guys both of, of the story of Lug and Carry. And just what you do, and then I want to go back into the, like, how did you both end up coming to do this together as brothers? So maybe do you want to, one of you want to take it and just say, you know, this is what Lug and Carry is up to, this is what we're doing, and go from there. I'll leave it to you, Dan. Yeah, thanks, man. So I guess in summary, like our, you know, business purpose is really that we see a massive opportunity in micromobility and then in our particular space, which is electric cargo bikes to reduce the number of car trips that are being done for small trips heavily bought into the you know the theory of uh, the Mebo world Oliver that we've you know yep. that we're participating in the conference etc and yeah so we're you know we're here in Australia basically convincing people that they don't need to use their car for short trips and that they can do a lot of it by electric cargo bike and we do that um, by combining what we think is a really game-changing product um, with an ongoing flexible service, including the ability to pay for it weekly. Yeah, and we're now, actually, we're, as of today, live in three cities across Australia. Woo-hoo. So Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane. Yep, love it. And you, so you're using the Turn GST, just so I can bring this right down to the mechanics. So you're using the Turn GST on a subscription basis uh, with, with families. And can you reveal how many bikes you've got on the roads at the moment? Yeah, happy to. So we use, at the moment in the fleet, it's primarily the Turn GSD and the Turn HSD. And we find that we can cater for many, many people's needs with those two products and run a really efficient fleet that way. And I'm sure we'll get to over the next hour some of the other benefits of those bikes from a hardware perspective. But yeah, we we should be 900 customers by the end of the month across those three cities. Yeah, awesome. Been running for two and a half years here in Melbourne, just under a year in Sydney and... uh, officially one day yeah. in Brisbane. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, because as far as I can tell, you're the largest consumer-facing e-cargo bike rental or subscription service globally. Like I've talked to, I've, I've done we, unless you know of any others, but I think I think that's where we're at. I think we are. Like that's, uh, well, yeah, we've been at it for 
Yeah, a little bit. I'm pretty sure we've got the biggest community of, or definitely the biggest community of 10 <laughs> e-bike riders. But yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we're the largest and the largest in the consumer-facing family. Totally. Yeah. I mean, it's ex- well, uh, definitely definitely update the Instagram handle now this afternoon, Oliver. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also just funny as well because it's like the Aussies. You guys just seem to to pump out these interesting subscription businesses because Mina Nada from Zuma is also based in Sydney, and you know he's built a global, like a global yeah. e-bike rental yeah. empire from from Sydney, um, mostly during COVID, which is kind of amazing. So it's been fun fun to watch uh, watch those guys kind of grow alongside us um, in, you know, we're very in both, you know, different but complementary and similar purpose-driven spaces. Yes. So, um, yeah, it's pretty cool. We're both coming out of Australia. We're, we're pretty excited by that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, look, I guess the part that I found, once I discovered you, I was like, oh, man, it's it's very interesting as I've talked to you, Dan, when you're at the conference and being even just in the, the kind of the short talk that we've had before we started this, but like you you seem to have kind of amazingly on-point skill sets for building this, you know? Like, and I'd love for you to just each to maybe talk through what it was that you were doing before this because I, th- I think really kind of frames up like why you've ended up building the business the way that you have. I might just add one little bit to this because we didn't know this either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Until, until we presented for the first time in a really important meeting. Like, it was hilarious. Like, we were pitching this idea essentially. Yeah. And I was living in Germany and Dan was based in Australia and we flew and landed in Taiwan. And it was the first, he arrived before I did, so I hadn't even seen him. He was already in the meeting room. And then we watched it. We hadn't seen each other for years. Yeah. Years even. And we had watched each other present and introduce ourselves for the first time, kind of telling the story we're about to. And I just remember both of us, instead of like looking at the client, we're looking at each other nodding. Yeah. As if being like, yeah, yeah, this makes heaps of sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Love it. Well, Ben, maybe you start off and then we'll go go to you, Dan. Yeah, so um, so my background and how we kind of ended up here. Yeah. So um, I got really itchy feet when I was 21, uh, setting industrial design in Melbourne and went over to Europe and landed in Germany and just had like extreme amounts of luck in meeting the right people, landing at the right university, which you need sometimes. So at the end of my degree, I got offered a job by my professor and I remember walking into the the first interview and thinking I was going to get into like German furniture design or something like that. And he just announced to me that, Hey, we've got a contract for a train in uh, Rio de Janeiro for the Olympics. And it was just like, all right, cool. I, I actually haven't looked at the mobility space at all, but here we go. My first opportunity, 21 in Germany, foreign country, didn't know a word. Let's go for it. And um, I ended up spending eight years uh, at that company designing first, just the vehicles but then getting a lot into like platform design, fleet design, universal design, uh, traveling the world, you know, implementing these vehicles, which, you know, have to run for 30 odd years and then they get shipped off to somewhere else and have to run another 15. Like, so really, really serious pieces of hardware. Kind of got my head around designing trains and got an itchy feet again and said, okay, I'm going to go out there and do something else and went into like the, I guess, the consulting side of the world and was able to ride a nice little wave of, like, essentially the iPhone changed the way that we paid and interacted with our transport and was able to take a lot of my learnings from, I guess, universal design or design for public use for trains and bring that into a whole bunch of other vehicle segments. So there was a lot of companies out there like Volkswagen and Deutsche Bahn, and they were all like, all right, now we want to share bikes and we want to share cars. What do you guys know about public transport and how do we bring that into the design of those vehicles? So it did some really interesting projects in that space and just mainly doing, you know, you know, three to six months of projects there, developing, mm-hmm. you know, crazy ideas that you're only just seeing on the streets today. Um, what was missing for me, though, in my experience before was that end-to-end design process i was kind of yep. working on a concept and then it disappeared and wasn't really seeing what what input i had been on it and then i went off and worked for a company called flash at the time which then turned into cirque which was germany's largest and first e-scooter sharing startup which you know grew from i think 40 to 700 employees in a matter of six months yeah wow it's just insane to watch yeah totally bananas <laughs> Yeah, like I was, I asked for it, you know, I, I was, I wanted to live the startup world and I got exactly what I asked for and some. So I was, you know, I think four weeks after I started the job, I was told I was moving to China and then I spent, you know, seven months flying back and 
workforce between China uh, developing, designing, and uh, procuring all our e-scooters, and then you know getting them registered and you know approved for you know, for Germany, which was just an amazing experience. But at that time, that exact time, it was the first time that Daniel and I were in the same time zone. Yep. In for you know this is 13 years later after my you know since I moved over, and we started chatting about MySpace and what he was doing. Uh, so. I'll throw to you, Dan, for the rest. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Yeah. Yeah, so um, why were Ben and I starting to chat about transport and uh, electric vehicles? So I, my career background is primarily in finance. I kind of worked through strategy and marketing functions and then ended up in, you know, most of my career running product management functions. So very much a, a product management guy. And then eventually um, the last sort of, five years of my career before we started this business, I was running a division of an Australian bank focused on small and medium business lending or commercial lending, which included, funnily enough, asset and vehicle finance. And um, there's a couple of really interesting projects that we were, you know, that I was sponsoring and working on in, in that space. The first one was kind of, you know, understanding the portfolio risk that sat in our business as a result of the changes in transport and what potential changes in the transport mix. You know, so autonomous vehicles, the move away from ICEs to EVs, et cetera. And you can imagine if, you know, you're one of the largest funders of bus networks and trucks, as well as many other ICE driven vehicles, you're kind of interested in where those trends are heading over time. So had uh, had some work going on in that space. And we're also working with an organisation in Australia that's um, government funded called the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, which was about incentivising small and medium businesses to accelerate the transition to lower emissions assets and the role that lending for assets played in that. And I really saw a lot of potential in that, particularly for the fact that, you know, if you think about solar or you think about other technologies that are that are driving down emission intensity at an asset level mostly that's you know generating cash flows so either avoiding paying cash or actually earning more income from the asset and it's also reducing the risk in the customer which i found really interesting right because you know as uh, most commercial lending is you know is risk-based lending and so i saw real potential for as we could further acknowledge and quantify that risk reduction and those cash flow improvements you didn't need to subsidize lower emissions technologies because it should have been reflected in the lower risk of the asset as well. And that was probably one of the more interesting things, you know, that I was working on in that space. And so out of those two, you know, two kind of, you know, pet projects at the time, I was like, well, Ben, Ben's probably got some views on this. <laughs> maybe, um, maybe I'll speak to Ben. So um, we started chatting and I think it was uh, probably late 2018 and early 2019 while Ben was in China and, you know, we have many late night phone conversations around getting increasingly deep in the, the you know, the upcoming change that was happening in transport and mobility. And I, I guess I kind of got like a mini, you know, a very quick education on the transport sector and mobility from Ben, starting from a finance perspective, but then, you know, moving into really what was happening from a societal perspective. And then out of that, we kept refining and refining the conversation until I think Ben, and you'll probably put it better in his words, but uh, the category of light electric vehicles became the, you know, the hot point of discussion. And um, maybe I'll let him kind of talk about why that was or what his observations were. Well, that was, yeah, ma the main reason I went to the startup world in the first place was this light electric vehicle category was being defined in Germany at the time. And I got to play a big role in that later on and actually, you know, standardising it. But before I went to Cirque, I'd come from an industry that was completely regulated. You know, trains, how many hundred years of trains been around? Every centimetre and angle and gauge of whatever is defined. And there's something exciting about that as a designer, to design within that space and come up with new ideas and innovative ideas and implement new technologies. Uh, the car industry is no better. It's probably harder. All the standards are you know, the reason why a lot of cars look the same today. Um, and then there was this new category that came out and it was essentially, you know, anything one metre wide, two metres long and has 250 watt nominal power is a light electric vehicle designed in that space. And you can imagine for engineers and designers, that was like, oh, cool, you know, 
that it's a completely open field. I can go do something really creative in that. So when someone offers you the job to go design in that box, then you jump at it. You go, all right, cool. You know, and I think we're seeing this slowly. You know, we're moving away from this traditional look of a bicycle. Bicycles are still, you know, the bicycle design is 100 years old plus and people have an expectation of it. But due to this change in, you know, electric motors and electric batteries becoming a big part of cycling or, or bikes, we're seeing the bicycle change and do different jobs and appear differently. And you can see some crazy product out there that is still a bicycle, especially in Europe. But that was the, the real innovation space where we were like, okay, this is a new vehicle category which isn't being represented well, where there is heaps of opportunity, there's heaps of use cases for these things. Let's start exploring those and see where we can find a market for them. Yeah, and that's kind of where we saw the, you know, where cargo, e-cargo really kicked off for us and went, okay, this is not just a bike with a motor. This is a new vehicle category and this is game changing. Yeah, so talk me through the, the bit that, that transition, right? So you go, like, you've clearly been doing scooters and then you're going like, okay, cool. We're going to go, not only are we going to go to scooters, but we're going to go to like... Cargo bikes going to go e-cargo bikes and then we're going to work out a way to get them in the hands of people in a way that seems like accessible and interesting and yeah stuff and i can imagine dan going like oh don't worry i know how to fund these (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, so i was doing a lot of work because like still as a consultant doing a lot of work with rail providers yeah their biggest competition is you getting in your car when you walk out the door yeah because once you're in your car you're a completely to b Whereas they were looking in ways to, okay, how do we get people to walk to the train station, use some type of last mile to get to the train station, or use some type of dynamic bus route, you know, Uber style thing to get people in the trains so that then you can go to you know, the south of France. Yep. And that, we had a lot of projects around that. And we did a lot of research with people around, you know, scooters, e-bikes and whatnot. You know, we'd just stand out in the front of you know, big shopping centers and ask people and I had product and say, what do you know about e-bikes? What do you know about scooters? And this is ages ago. This is well before I can carry. And back then, the, the, the knowledge was very low of what they were, what they should cost. But if you got someone to sit on it, they got it straight away. It clicked. They got it. Okay, I get what an e-bike does. I get how it works. I get how I could use it in my life. So that was, I had a lot of that knowledge stored in my mind. <laughs> Then the e-scooter thing went through the roof. Like this was pre, you know, Bird and Tier and all these companies. And I jumped on that that bandwagon and saw what that product category could do. Yep. Where it was, you know, sure, smaller. You could get it on a train. You could put it in your apartment quite easily. It solved a lot of issues. But I also saw a lot of things it wasn't solving. It wasn't solving, you know, day-to-day trips. You can't ride a scooter like you ride a bike. You don't see people cruising down a bike lane on a scooter with one hand to the side, you know, chilling out, relaxed. They're quite intense things to ride <laughs> yep. is what I was noticing. And then the other thing was it was an immature uh, product. Kind of, they were new. Uh, essentially, they'd taken a design that we knew as kids or, you know, uh, non-electric, and then they would pack these you know, massive batteries on them and match the big engines, and they're a heap of fun. But it was still very early days, and I think everyone remembers the pictures on Twitter and whatnot of these things failing and breaking. And I wasn't convinced that they were up to the job that I thought they needed to do to really make a game-changing effect on the way that people move through their cities. Um, spontaneous trips, meetings, sure. But to convince someone to change the trips that they're currently doing in their car, you know, getting the groceries, picking up the kids, getting to work, I didn't see or didn't believe that the category of product was good enough for that. So even when I was at CERC, we were looking around thinking, like, how do we get, you know, move a little bit away from tourists and the spontaneous use case? How do we get people to use these things? And it all came down to, you know, safety, like being able to ride it very securely and carrying stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And then when Dan and I started talking, we started, you know, first with e-bikes because we thought, okay, it's, they, these guys have been around for a while. Like e-bikes is not new. Uh, they've been, you know, Bosch had been doing it for 10 years. And we kind of went first in as well to this, you know, cool looking, I guess, kind of the scooter way, some kind of cool product. It's now an e-bike, you know, a, a stealth commuter or something like that, you know, that that's, doesn't look like an e-bike, but is. But then, you know, kind of brought it back again and said, well, you know, what extra does it really do other than, than your bike today? It gets you up the heels a bit better. Um, it's a bit of fun, but what's really game-changing, and 
you know, kind of did a full 180 and went back to some of our learnings. And it was like, no, they have to replace car trips and they have to be better than your current bike. And that's when we really started focusing in on the, the cargo aspect and seeing, okay, that's a, a space that we want to play and we see longevity. And it's also just a really interesting space because it makes use of that, what I was talking about before, these standards, which is it can be heavy, it can be wide, it can carry lots of stuff, and you don't need a license. And most people are going to be able to ride it. So the accessibility is extremely high. So the potential is very high. That got us to the, I guess, the hardware solution. And then we started digging into depots like, okay, how do we get these in people's hands? So did you end up picking the turns because you looked around and you were like, well, we could, I mean, I know that you've been trying to, yeah. build, you, you, when you were at Cirque, you were building your own, you were building things, right? Like you, you it wasn't just. Totally. Yeah. Um, do, you want me to, do you want me to tell that story a bit? Yeah, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> There's a personal, there's a p- interesting personal side to this as well, right? Is is while all this great kind of you know macro and industry sort of observations are being formed in our minds, Ben's also like niggling at me. He's like, "Why don't you guys ride e-bikes?" It, like, yeah, because you know, I I guess I would call myself a a late bloomer to um, cycling for transport. Yep. You know, so my you know my wife my wife and I had a couple of young kids, and we'd probably in the last two years to that point started riding around on bikes for getting to work, getting to the shops, you know, and towing the kids around in the trailer. And, and so while all this is going on, you know, thinking about it from a, you know, a big perspective, Ben's saying, why don't you guys have a, like an e-bike? Yeah. <laughs> why don't you know, like, and we're like, well, we don't need an e-bike. We're, we're bike riders. Yeah. You know? We don't need an e-bike, right? And then he's like, just go and get an e-bike. If we like, just, just hurry up and do it. And I was like, well, okay. Like, it was, it, you know, these two things came together, right? Which is they're starting to take the category potential quite seriously. And then I'm going, you know, then I'm like, well, I better go buy an e-bike, right? And of course, you know, you know, being the type of person I am, I, you know, interneted all night, you know, as to what was the right e-bike for our family and um, came across some very positive reviews of the term GSD and went and bought one basically the next day. So, you know, my wife and I went and bought it, test, test rode a few, and then really and the GSD was like a standout product for us. And, and we purchased it. Ben didn't know this, by the way. And then, uh, so I've been riding it around for a few weeks. And then I think, you know, maybe about a month or so later, Ben's like, oh, you know how we're thinking about cargo and bikes. Uh, I got a meeting with uh, one of my friends has introduced me to, to Josh, who, you know, the CEO of Turn. And so there's kind of these interesting kind of parallel thing was going on. And in that time, I'd kind of, you know, I'd had this personal realization, like there's this story, the story that I tell is that I was working from home on a, on a Friday afternoon. Um, my son was sick. He wasn't able to go to, to kinder. I was working from home. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. I've got school pickup to do it at, at 3.20. And I've got something I need to pick up from the city. So I live seven, seven and a half Ks from the, the CBD here in Melbourne. And I really wanted to pick that thing up. And I was like, it's two o'clock. Need to, you know, I've got three twenty pickup. I can do it. And you know, put put my son, you know, who was a little bit unwell on the back of the bike. And we rode in, parked out the front, picked the thing up, rode back out, got to got to the primary school, picked my daughter up, and then got home. And like it was just the easiest trip that I could imagine. It was so easy to do. It was on a cold, windy day. So not something I'd normally have been, you know, get the bike trailer out and do it, and it would have been a lot slower. I couldn't have done it in the car. I certainly couldn't have done it on public transport. I'm sort of just reflecting that night that this product is an absolute game changer. It is the superior kind of vehicle of choice for these five to 10 kilometer trips that formed most of the trips that we were doing in our life. And then we also just noticed that we were riding bikes a lot more. So whilst we might have said, oh, we don't need an e-bike because, you know, we cycle everywhere. We didn't. Right. And then, you know, three or four weeks in, we just realized as a family how little we'd used our car. In fact, you know, there'd been a, a period for, I think, three or four weeks where we just hadn't used it at all. So I had, I was going through this kind of personal kind of connection to the product and the category and just realizing just how useful and game changing that product was on a day to day basis and just being surprised that so little awareness, but massive potential in it. Mm. And yeah, that happened to be at the same time that uh, Ben was building, you know, connections with, with the term team as well. Yeah. We did have awesome. a, a lot of conversations or Dan was, I think, pushing me a little bit at the start to go do it ourselves, go build yeah. it ourselves. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because, you know, who wouldn't want to? Yeah. Mm. And yeah, we could have, I mean, you know, that's something that you, know, you, you could do. At the time though, I was just coming from, you know, 
manufacturing. I was sitting in manufacturing plants for seven months, uh, you know, pumping out thousands of scooters and you know, putting them in boxes and sending them over to Europe and all that stuff. And it kind of came down to like, what would be the uplift and what would what would be the risk and what do we actually want? Mm. And what I was inspired by at the time when I was working at Cirque was watching Jump. Jump were the first player at the time to come in with really quality hardware. Like actually spent double of what everyone else was spending on on the hardware. And funnily enough, if you go out into a street anywhere in Australia at the moment, or I'm sure overseas, the bikes that you see on the street today are the, are the jump bikes. Yep. They're still there. Yep. Uh, you don't see the other ones anymore. And I know they were spending double. Manufactured in the same you know, areas around Shenzhen, but they were spending it because they had made that step that longer, you know, sustainable, but also financially, you know, step to say these products need to be more than what the consumer, you know, upcoming, where they come from. They need to be more than that. They need to be fleet product. And that's, you know, my, my head was ticking over from all my experience making trains and stuff like that, which is it needs to be beefy. It needs to be solid. It needs to run. It needs to be reliable. But then you also need to service it and you need to be able to service it for, Years and years and years and years and years. And what we saw in, well, you still see it in the e-bike space a lot in the scooter space as well, is that they just churn through models. Yeah. And, you know, they're updating bits and bobs along the way. And, you know, it's very hard to keep track of what motor control unit is now with what battery. And then if you want to service that thing in two years' time, then you are making it very difficult for yourself. So with all that in mind, when we actually bit the bullet and said we're going to you know, pilot this project. We didn't want to, and I, I, as you can imagine, I've probably been through six horror stories where we'd had product land for different companies. And if it doesn't work, you can't test your business model. Yeah. You know, if something's on the hardware doesn't work, or you have a failure or a safety, you're not really proving much other than your hardware doesn't work. And we wanted to avoid that for sure, but also we were just so impressed with the equality of product that was already out there, mm. like. Some of these companies have been manufacturing for years and they were using extremely high quality products. And those subcomponents or products had really good supply chain and had been around for 20 years or 10 or more. So when we were looking at our, you know, our five year plan, which we posted it up on a wall in, in Taiwan, <laughs> the hotel wall, I think we still got the photo of that. That was really important to think, okay, we can't just expect one year out of these things. We need five years, 10 years. Um, yeah. And we need to know that the, we'll be able to access the parts we need long, long, long term. Yeah. And I, I do get that de-risking. Like I, I think it's been one of those things that the companies that didn't go out and develop their own hardware in, well, let's put it this way. A lot of the companies that went out and insisted on developing their own hardware and the kind of the shared scooter boom were the ones that really ended up in trouble yeah. versus the ones that were like, I'm not going to bother. I, <laughs> I actually just last week interviewed Swing Scooters from South Korea. So Swinger like... The, the president of Ninebot told him that after Tia, he's the second biggest customer for from Segway Ninebot. And he's, it's, it's like he's placing these giant orders and he's just like, I have one purchasing guy, you know, like in the hardware, in, the, in our hardware business. It's like, I have a very small overhead. I have one hardware guy who purchases stuff. Like I do not, this whole idea that you have to go out and develop your own custom hardware is just a route to disaster. Especially if, you, if you've got companies that are out there that have got good quality stuff, right? So I, I, I really get that. So yeah, cool. So I think the the other one on that Oliver is like the like the re, the research we were doing from talking to people at the time yeah. was that like the innovation space was getting the world riding these things. Like you know if you if you, if you look at a e cargo bike, it's a pretty foreign object to a lot of people. Yeah. And you know we're you know we're quite a few years into the business here in Australia, and you know you still get the head knapsack you know right you know i ride around with my kids on the back and like there's still people who are seeing it for the first time yes right so it, it is still a quite a it's still a very novel concept and so the the, the innovation space was taking this unique game changing product but convincing people to change their behavior because mm. there's a massive behavior change that's required to go from driving to work to riding a cargo bike or driving to the shops and doing the growth you know all these ingrained behaviors the innovation space for the potential for the category and the potential for, you know, the, the, the purpose side of the business, which is the, the really positive impacts these vehicles can have required behavior change. And that, that was the exciting bit in the project. Um, 
Yeah. So talk me through that part, because that to me feels like the innovation. There's a kind of combination of lots of different things here, but like the behavior change thing is like hard. But I guess the part that I'm kind of that I'm asking about is like, to me, subscription feels like such a really cool possibility because it removes, it helps you get through a lot of those challenges, right? So like, what are the barriers? Well, it's like, well, we can solve for that, 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 that. But for it to make sense for everybody, you end up having to build a business around that. So like, can you talk a bit about that, like that customer journey for, for getting to that and why that ended up, you know, you ended up adjusting your business model around that? Yeah. So I think the, you know, it's a combination of, I think, a lot of Ben's experience through his career in terms of those behavior change around transport and then some really specific research we did around the product category and then linking it to, I guess, other consumer technology and adoption. And that kind of those three things all came together in the, you know, the feature set that we've, that we've deployed. But at its core, and it's possibly not the most important forever, but it's definitely the most important at the time we launched, which was coming up with a relatable price point. Mm. Most people, when you ask them what an electric bicycle should cost, will their relative price point that they use is a normal bicycle yes. that they might have happened to have purchased for you know between $500 and $1,000 or something, right? Or they see them in that price range. And hence, the price anchor of an electric bicycle is a bicycle. But of course, when you're opening up a whole range of use cases and you're doing things like carrying passengers, the price anchor should be closer to your car than yes. your everyday transport, right? Yep. Um, but it's very hard for people to make that leap. So being able to advertise a weekly price point, we saw as a really key part of you know simplifying the product and making it making the purchase decision easier for people because they can relate it to our objective was that they could relate what it would cost them to ride a bicycle to the same as what they would spend on petrol or parking or maybe even public transport. And so that was kind of the one of the, the early pieces. And then I think the other thing as to why subscription or as a service, I guess is what we'll, we'll call it, right? Because is that our core objective is to get people using these for everyday transport, mm. right? It's, this is not a recreation vehicle. And so, you know, if I think about myself as a, a vehicle owner over many, many years in my experience owning vehicles, which predominantly have been cars. Yeah. I'm a pretty busy person. I don't like to think about it too much and it just needs to work. Yeah, and you'll pay for the reliability, yeah. right? Like over, over a standard thing, yeah. Correct. Yeah, yeah, it's that peace of mind that comes with comes with that ownership of that vehicle and that maturity of that product. And hence, like, you know, the bicycle and the electric bicycle is not all the way there yet. And we think that that's the cool thing is as bicycles, you know, eventually become as reliable as cars, then that's the future. But in the short term, there's many things somebody needs if they want to, you know, once you rely on this electric bike as part of your, your everyday life, it needs to work and you need support. And so bundling in those things with the bike to make sure that, it doesn't just end up one of those bikes with a flat tire that sits around the side, which many people have that story, right? You you ask people about their you know their bicycle ownership journeys, and there's long periods of time where bicycles don't get used, and so there's kind of those those observations that have led to doing the bikes as a service. Yeah, I think the only one I'll check on top of that is we knew, and it's yes changing, but still a predominant case for most Australians is it's a big decision to go get an e-bike, especially one to carry your family. And they don't know, or the customer doesn't know whether it's going to work out. <laughs> like it's, they're not replacing their, their Volkswagen Golf with another Volkswagen Golf yeah. and getting a 1% uplift because of the new Apple CarPlay or whatever. It's a completely different vehicle and they're not overly cheap. And there's a lot of uncertainty about whether it will work and it will replace their the, the trips that they wanted to do with that second car or whatever there were other options they were thinking of. So really need to reduce all those barriers and say, well, no, just get your bum on one and see, see, see how it works out. And we knew that was very important from day one for, from a behavior change standpoint. Yeah. And I think the, the other, I guess the strategic one as well is that, you know, Ben was very firm with me from the start that, you know, with in an, in a category that was going to have price perception and, kind of consumer awareness and consumer maturity challenges for, you know, really what at least another decade from where we are today, right? From, from where we started. He was very insistent on quality 
you know, the, you know, the CENI's background around assets that are deployed to have a long and useful life. There was absolutely no point addressing the consumer perception challenges around price by deploying, you know, cheap, not long, you know, product that would become landfill in a couple of years yeah. or have safety outcomes, you know, poor safety outcomes that would undermine the potential of the entire category in the industry. And so it's not as easy to work with really high quality, expensive hardware in this space, but for us, it's essential because again, we, we believe so strongly in these products long-term you know, applicability to the general population. We can't have either poor environmental outcomes or poor safety outcomes threatening the credibility of the space while it's emerging. Mm. Also, the cus- just poor customer experiences. Like, oh, it is. It's a terrible customer experience if they if it sucks. You know. Yeah, like it's nothing better than rocking up to someone's house and giving them a premium bike. <laughs> like yeah. they're stoked. Yeah, <laughs> they're absolutely yeah. stoked about it. Yeah, a customer that came to us yesterday actually that uh, had a, a bike that's throttle got stuck and threw them off. So you know, it's actually a fifty-five-year-old woman. Mm. Yeah, and got thrown off her bike with a stuck throttle, and like this, that bike is not meeting Australian standards because it would be overpowered for a bike that has a throttle, and it should not have been sold, right? Yes. Um, and so you just, oh, you just. Yeah. Oh, you mean? Oh, sorry, sorry. It was not your bike. It was like another. No, no, bike. no, not yeah. our bike. Yeah, 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 right. yeah, yeah <laughs> not our bike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's just yeah. like you know, it's. Luckily, she's well into the product and she's experienced it, you know, the category and she's experienced its benefits over the course of a year before the, she's had this incident. Yeah. If that happened in the first week, the number of stories that becomes, yes. you know, is to tell people electric bikes are not safe. Yeah. You know, I paid $2,500 for a bike and it, you know, hurt me. Mm. Those, you know, it's just. It's not a great outcome for the industry, right? Totally. So that oh, it's the it's the horrible. Did you hear Simon Cowell got knocked off his? Oh, really? He he had a massively overpowered e bike. Of course, he did. Experience and got thrown off it, and then went and tried to sue the company. It's just one of these things. I agree with you. Like it's 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 it, the industry doesn't help itself by putting people on five thousand watt bikes, you know, yeah. and without without you know really 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 bedding in all the good stuff, so making sure that they're safe and all those other things. Um, okay, so you've got the the two GSDs, like because the other part about it, I also have kind of picked up from conversations with you is that there's value in that being able to it, like tap into the GSD ecosystem for accessories, like that. When I think about it and go like, why do I not own a GSD or a, even an even a cargo bike? It's like, well, I don't have kids, so I can kind of get by with the stuff that I have, but like. If I was to do it, the first thing that I'd be thinking about is like, yeah, if, if we've got kids or I want to chuck them on the back, it's like, do you, how do you fit all these things to make sure that they're all the appropriate, uh, you know, that you've got an appropriate ecosystem of things that fit all, all of the stuff. And I just know that that, yeah. that was a big uh, decision point for you as well. Totally. So, yeah, modular parts. So the, the bikes, you know, we've got two models, but, you know, all the accessories interchangeable. Most of the componentry, even from, uh, you know, the wear and tear, uh, the same across both models. But even like subscription and accessories in family has this really nice, and I don't think we picked it up to be honest then right at the start, how practical subscription and accessories is. You can make a whole business around it, I'm sure. Yeah. Because child seats are expensive. Yeah. And just like child shoes and they grow out of them real quick. <laughs> and then you've, you know, I remember going to Dan's house actually when I first uh, landed back from Germany, and he has got like the side of his terrace or whatever, and there was like a, a plethora of uh, e-bike, Oh, not e-bike, just bike accessories that the kids have grown out of. Stuff that kids have grown out of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, you know, trailers, bike seats, and then a hitch for the car, and, you know, all this stuff. And the subscription allows our customer segment kind of, like, a benefit through the subscription by, you know, changing the bike or, you know, modifying the bike as the kids grow up or as their use cases even change. Yeah. Like, it goes full circle in which... You know, a family will pick up a bike with one child seat on it. They'll add another. Then they'll remove another. And then at some point, they might swap out the whole bike because they just want to commute now and the kids are riding themselves. So there's this real, like, interchange of products. And, you know, as your use case changes, we enable you to, you know, change the setup. And because the bikes are designed the way they are, in that really modular sense, it's very easy for us to achieve lots of different outcomes totally yeah so it keeps the product relevant to the customer for a very long period of time yeah it's a real friction remover as well because like you get this like 
there's the we talk about it in the in the in the team a bit but there's this you know the three and a half to four and a half year old child age is a really interesting age is to to be riding with because things can change really really quickly right so you could be you know looking at you know potentially going from a a tool a child seat to a whole different setup in the space of six months in that range and so if you think about the decisions that people are facing there it's like oh well i guess i'll wait six months until i start riding Yes. You know, like it just puts a further friction point in the, you know, whereas if you can say, just start today and yep. switch it again in six months' time, but the alternative is, is that I wait because I'm not prepared to sink three or $400 into a six-month solution and then have to sell the thing secondhand or put it down the side of the house, as I was obviously doing. So. Totally, totally. I, 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 I 100% get that. The other thing that I think is also when we're talking about barriers to adoption, that you and I had talked about, Dan, was theft. And like, mm. you know, like I don't want to go and buy an $8,000 bike if I know that it's, you know, the yeah, possibility of it getting nicked. And I'm just curious, you know, how you've thought about that part, especially from a funding perspective, because you're obviously funding these bikes, right? Like you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're on the hook really in some ways. Like the customer has some some level of exposure, but, you, you know, at the end of the day, they're debt finance vehicles. So mm. how have you thought about that part? Do you want to cover the... Like the usability or the customer side, then, and then I can I can maybe talk to the, the finance side. Yeah. So in terms of like I guess this podcast and where I hope to see a lot of innovation in the bicycle industry, I guess is around storage and locking. Yeah. Like it's one of the biggest barriers for a lot of a lot of our customers, but just generally, people don't have much space and they're petrified of their assets getting stolen. And for some reason, you know, a bicycle. Is seen as a non is seen as an object on the street that you can treat differently. Like there's you know cars that sit on the street that are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars and no one would even touch them or you know go near them because there's this respect built up for this this product this you know this thing and you know we need to get bicycles essentially to the same level, which is you can park them out on the street or whatever and not have this fear that someone's going to key them or. or in the short term, what we have done is kind of layer up the security. So we have a three-part locking system, and we bought in some really, you know, innovative things at the time, which was um, stuff that you were used to on your car in the early 2000s, which was a, a, an alarm system, just to, you know, uh, stop those, I guess, those thieves who are spontaneously, you know, thinking about nicking your bike, but also accessories. I know a lot of cyclists who've had the story of having a seat post nicked and that's really annoying yeah uh, because you got all the bike but no but nowhere to see yeah. or even worse your front wheel but um just really basic things but th- th- what's important for storage and locking um out in the street especially is layering it up yeah um so we have a like i said three parts to really layer it up so that the if a you know a thief and then it is a normally a spontaneous uh, occasion where someone steals mm. something especially mm. on the street if they're looking at their bike, at your bike, and they see there's only one action to be done, then they might consider it. If you layer that up and add three tools or three actions, then your chance of theft drops greatly. So we, mm-hmm. we approached it that way uh, from day one. But like I said before, I think in the innovation space, this is somewhere where we really need to, and we are, continue to, uh, to, to you know invest time and money because that's the big, one of the biggest pain points for our customers and probably the biggest uplift that we could imagine in this space for people to totally i think that's the one one thing that i think van move have done really well and one of the reasons i've been yeah. really excited about them is they they nailed the like you know if you, your bike won't get stolen or if it gets stolen we'll recover it for you you know and that's yeah. part of a subscription service to it as well yes and i feel like that's part of it so when you say there's three layers so it's like the is, i assume it's like the beep beep you know the yeah. thing yeah 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 uh so yeah. it's like that level of alarm i assume you have a lock of some system what's the other one yeah so we have a a, a wheel lock uh a a chain which goes then around a solid object and then yep. we have the alarm system yeah uh, goes into that and is that uh, that alarm system is like motion activated or yeah it's just yep. uh, uh motion activated which is on the, the bike somewhere yep yeah cool Nice. Um, we, you know, there's, uh, we could have gone straight to a, I guess, an IoT solution. Yeah. Uh, so from the sharing industry, I had enough contacts out there, and we do see the use for that. Yeah. Um, but more in other use cases, so in a commercial use case, is it's definitely more interesting from a predictive maintenance standpoint. Yeah. But um, just like the Vamoof one, or 
if anyone remembers Gogo Row, yeah, uh, and the interaction with that, there's something really in there around the the interaction with your bike, and you see it with cars even today. There's something nice around that the car reacts to you being around. I think that's the real interesting space to start playing around and to start to lift up the, I guess the the, the perceived smarts and and value of the product, which will then hopefully result in people giving them more respect. Yeah. yeah. I've had been having a number of very interesting conversations with, with folks in the industry about this, that the, if you can build a product that, that is itself built to be anti-theft right from the get-go. So it has all that stuff. Like it's, it, you know, it, it automatically has that same level of protection. It's like a moped, but you walk up to it and it works, but you can just walk, yeah. you can leave it, just like go somewhere, leave it outside. Don't ever have to lock it to anything. You just park, you literally like park it, walk away, come back. That to me is like the level of experience that I think, will just be like so mind blowing to anybody else who comes to the space, you know, and it's like, you know, we'll get there eventually. I think the tech will get there eventually, but um. I think that if you watch some of the other players out there, so um, uh, Zumo and Vamu yep. uh, have both uh, got concepts flying around at the moment and they kind of address it in the matter you're going for. And I find it super interesting. Like I really, really find it interesting. And the way they're going about it by the look of it is white. Yep. So it seems to be that, you know, once you can't lift it. Yeah, just make it heavy. Yeah. <laughs> you can't you can't nick it. Yeah. yeah. Well I think that's I think that's part of it, for sure. Oh. But I also, you know, part of the joy of having a bike is that you can also move it around if you need to put it in stuff. So, so it's finding that, you know, we do get the often the quiet question the, the question was, Yeah, great, you've got cargo bikes, do you have light ones? And it's you know, it's this you know it's this battle to, you know, sure we want to, but you know, what's it gotta do at the end of the day? Yeah. Totally. And oftentimes the reason that you want it to be lighter so you can put it inside because you think it's going to get stolen. Totally. And if you don't have a good... And storage is a, you know, Australia is full of terrace houses yeah. uh, with a few steps out the front. You can imagine trying to get that up and down every day. It's just another barrier to not getting on the bike. Yeah, So totally. Yeah. Cool. Dan, talk to me about financing them. How did you think about that and what and what's the theft, you know, how does theft kind of consider into it? Yeah, okay. Well, you asked the ex-banker to talk about risk management. You've gone into kind of dangerous territory there. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's, you know, it's, it's been interesting. It's a really interesting journey on the on the, the theft and the, the risk side and that we've had some we've had some good advice and learnings along the way. But, you know, the simple story is we planned for a reasonable amount of theft to start with and hoped that, that you know that wouldn't you know and build a business model and a pricing model that worked for that and, and gradually refined it over time and then you know we try to think of theft as you know like um, think about insurance insurance is for you know events that are unlikely but you know high impact mm-hmm. and theft theft for us is likely and it's about making it low impact right? yeah and you know making it less likely with through the selection of our customers and you know the you know the the product side of things that Ben spoke to, yeah, and it's proven to be quite manageable basically. Yeah, um, you know I think we yeah we every every six months or so we kind of refine our expectations of theft going forward and that you know if we're still I guess outperforming that side of it and still have plenty of room for that to move and then you've got the product advancements over time that'll help refine that as well. So. It's actually been, uh, compared to all the things we were worried about at the start, it's actually been one of the more manageable parts of the business um, and less surprising parts of the business. Um, so that, that's been cool. Yep. And then I think, yeah, the funding side of the business, so, you know, I guess um, we're, you know, being a startup, I guess, a couple of years ago, but being a capital intensive startup that was using a lot of balance sheet. We were a bit of an ugly duckling in the startup parade, you know, early on. And, you know, we'd have, we'd have people get really excited about us to go, oh, you've given all the money's like buying bikes and you own lots of assets. And it's like, well, yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah. You know, like that's, that's what we do. And that, I guess, made there are many, you know, particularly in the, in the more mainstream startup and tech space made us, and, and you know, we're down here in Australia. So, we were a little bit of an ugly duckling, I guess, from from that perspective, and that we didn't look like many other startups. But then we've had some more positive sides of that, which is, you know, you know generated quite a bit of cash early on as well, and you know, didn't have high opex burns. So that that's kind of working in our favour as well. But I think it's about there are, you know, I always had, I guess, coming from my background and working on clean tech finance at the bank, 
the view that there's plenty of appetite for funding assets that produce, you know, a great outcome and that things like, you know, energy and transport and utilities, uh, you know, these are essential parts of society and they require assets and they require people to own them and they require people to manage them and they require people to fund them. And that's not a new concept. The product category is new, but the overall kind of financing environment can get its head around this space. Um, so I've always had that hope, I guess, that that's where the category would end up. I think that's working. Um, and if you look at, say, like, you know, commercial and residential solar. Yep. We're probably fine, you know, we're probably following a very similar pattern from a financing perspective in that, you know, in the early days of residential solar, there were more people, people who were more aggressive in terms of taking the risk, in terms of understanding the category and financing the early adopters who were putting solar systems on their, you know, on their homes um, around the world. And then over time, that's become a mainstream finance activity. And so we've found that the people who've backed us early, a lot of them have actually had good experience in that solar space. We were lucky to come across a group of investors who'd been on that journey and who are actually exiting from financing solar because they'd seen that they'd done their job yep. and they were looking for new categories to try and you know stimulate a, a similar outcome. So that's probably been the, one of the one of the best sides of our funding story to date. Yeah, because you've raised how much in terms of equity and how much in terms of debt so far? Yeah, so we did a very small, well, I mean, we funded a lot of the equity for the, for the first few hundred bikes ourselves yep. to start with. And then we did a small seed round of a million dollars, yep. which funded some fleet, you know, some of the early fleet growth. And then we've been able to use a combination of term debt and convertible debt. The objective of getting to over a thousand active bikes in the fleet across a few cities to really show that we, you know, we are series A ready, I guess, you know, that we're, you know, we've achieved product market, not just product market fit, but we've achieved that we can also scale as an organization. And so that was our target to set up. And we didn't, you know, so we, what we call a bridge funding round um, that we've done across a combination of term debt and, um, convertible debt seven million dollars and all of that's pretty much gone into funding assets we've got a really small amount of operational cash burn we're funding as we expand geographically and expand the team as we ramp up but um you know we, we've also got a reasonable arr behind us as well so um yeah yeah the funding yeah yeah i mean it's a compel it's a very interesting and compelling you know business i think it's just one of these things of as you say it becomes less risky over time. And, and at that point, I imagine I can see it that, you yeah. know, three years from now or five years from now that, you know, this will be the standard, like that, that will be very easy to go out and get financing for these vehicles. Maybe not very easy, mm. but certainly a lot easier with, with the, you know, you think about the technology that's coming down the pipe and the level of customer adoption and the willingness that folks to be able to get mm. in the space and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think we're seeing that as well. Like we're, we're definitely seeing the appetite for financing the product really increasing and we'll be, you know, probably early in the new year, we can hopefully announce something reasonably, you know, exciting around that side as the side as well. But, you know, and it's getting away from the kind of traditional high interest rate consumer finance type space and where it's predominantly been and more into mainstream closer to people who are happy to fund things like, you know, solar and, and cars and things like that. Yeah. And how do you do, like with the customer acquisition? I'm, I, you know, one thing that you talked to me about was uh, some of the really novel ideas that you've had about building that you go into a city, but then, but there, are, you know, it, it happens that you sort of get a couple of customers when you launch into a new city, but actually there are clusters emerge in this space mm-hmm. and, and how you've been able to supercharge that. Can you talk me through that side of it, the customer acquisition side as well, and what you found some interesting things? Yeah. So, you know, in Melbourne, when we first launched, like Dan and I delivered the first 200 bikes ourselves. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah. We were, you know, doing the, the most ultimate customer research all the time because <laughs> you were talking to every customer. Um, but what we noticed there, it probably took a little, way, little while to, you know, eventuate, was that we were seeing that a certain street or a certain primary school would suddenly go from two bikes to, you know, upwards to 16 sometimes in a, mm. in a short period of time, which got us really thinking, which was, you know, okay, this is word of mouth, but also it is really important that people see other people similar to themselves 
doing what you know we want them to do, which is you know dropping the kids off on an e-bike or riding an e-bike, just normalizes it in their heads yeah. uh, to see someone else do it. You can put a uh, you know an ad on Instagram as much as you want, but it's it's hard to relate to it uh, and see yourself on it. So we went about thinking about how, okay, how do we supercharge that? How do we get that to happen really quickly so that we have this, I guess, this essential bare minimum of bikes in a, in a small dense area to get that real boom. Mm-hmm. And one of the, I guess, the most innovative things we've been working on or, or developed was a program in which we work directly with primary schools uh, in which we, you know, first inform but also do test ride and information days and then the bikes are offered to families within those primary schools on a, I guess, a free trial, which is subsidised by local councils, mm-hmm. in which we provide the full service and it allows families at a particular school to give the bikes a go. So yep. you can imagine, you know, from the week before to the week our trial starts, you know, there's an uplift of upwards of, you know, 20 bikes arriving that morning uh, with kids on the back of them. Yep. You know, and it's... Uh, and you know, that's two, twofold. One, a whole bunch, you know, 300 other parents are going to see that happening. But then a big percentage of those people who do the trial who haven't ridden the school before continue riding. Yep. Either with us or they do it themselves, you know, with other means. But I think, you know, I think 78% of our, our last trial continued riding to school. Yeah, wow. After the, the initial trial, which is just huge. And it's really substantial if you think about it, if you're a family you know, the school drop-off is this crazy melting pot of, you know, hundreds of cars arriving, kids running everywhere. And just the visual impact of, you know, 15 cargo bikes arriving in the morning comparative to the week before is a huge, huge change. And yeah. it has big influence on the community and the streets. And hopefully it also just creates a whole bunch of awareness around cycling, which is good for everyone. Yeah. I'm conscious of time and I've got I've got one final question for you because I, I love that story, by the way. I think that the, the, the one of having councils part fund a subscription model like this feels to me like at least in the early days, like a way that you can help drive that adoption and a way that a council can like relatively hands off, but in a way that feels... You know, they don't need to take the assets. What you see with a lot of councils around the world, they're like, oh, we want to encourage e-bike uptake. So we're going to like go and buy the e-bike, and go put it into like a library and people can access and all this sort of stuff. It's like, nah, mate. Yeah. We literally say no to these because these ideas still fly around. Yeah. People are trying to make an impact and they call up and they're like, can I put eight bikes out the front of said place? Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't work. you got to get people on them and create a real use case and, you know, show people using them and normalize it. It's all about normalizing. And then yes. other people go, oh, I did the same trips you do. Maybe I'll get a bike. But yes. just sitting bikes there is not the solution. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Look, the final, uh, final question I had is just, you know, obviously you've gone to, you've just launched Brisbane today. Congratulations. But curious for you, you know, like any, anything that you wanted to share about where you're thinking for, like what you're thinking for, for the future. Yeah, so we're pretty excited about the future, really. Like we've um, <laughs> very excited. So we've had a, you know, we've had a good couple of years here, really understanding the business, understanding the customer base. You know, kind of looking at what branch economics and profitability and all those sort of things look like, and we're um, we're keen to grow, basically. So you know, the the geographic expansion in Australia, and I think you know, as we might have been talking about to a few people that in in the US in that recent at the recent conference. We see really strong potential in some US cities as well. So looking to kind of add those to the to the portfolio. And then also, you know, there's there's we've built a as you might imagine, we haven't really touched on it, but we've built a pretty cool platform for managing our fleet. Yeah. And for driving behavior change. So there's two, you know, our fleet, you know, our platform does a couple of things. It does behavior change related acquisition in a really cool way. And by our platform, I mean our people and our culture and all those sorts of things as well that becomes part of that. And then also we can finance, deploy, and manage assets in a, in a in an efficient way. We can extend that to more use cases, and you know, our, I think we're both super excited as the product innovation and the category develops, and there's more innovation and more use cases. Um, we want to be a part of that story as well, and particularly the opportunity to stay in. You know, we we found ourselves in a very you know blue ocean, open strategic space like replacing car trips with bicycles, which wasn't a thing before there's more of those cases coming and just having that platform and that capability to go after that. So, um, yeah, we're pretty excited about the future there. Yeah. 
Epic. Well, yeah, look, it's been such a pleasure getting to know you both and I'm excited for the future and what, what that'll enable. I'm looking forward to having you back on soon enough when, when you have uh, further things to announce at some point. But look, in the meantime, your parents must be both very proud. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it was very, very, very cool to see. So, yeah, look, thank you. Wonderful to have you on and, and just, um, yeah, hats off to you for, for what you built. Thanks, Oliver. And thanks, Oliver. Yeah, yeah much appreciated.